This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And we welcome to the show Congressman Jim McGovern, Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District, which encompasses most of our listenership area. Congressman McGovern, thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate the time. I, I want to turn to Tyra Nichols and his funeral yesterday attended by Vice President Kamala Harris. Uh, a, a devastating event, something I think that just shakes the soul of our country a 29-year-old 20, black man murdered by the police in Memphis. At the funeral yesterday, there were calls for passage in Congress of the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. That bill has been before Congress for some time, and I'm wondering whether it has any chance of passage. It has important, important provisions in it, including a national registry for police officers who have been fired or prohibition on no-knock warrants, a whole slew of things that would make policing safer, safer for the police and for everyone. And I'm wondering, right. does it have a chance? Well, um, it, it's an uphill battle. I mean, as you know, we, we passed the George Floyd Policing Act in the House, um, and then uh, we couldn't get the Senate to even take it up. Uh, I mean, that's one of the problems with the filibuster. Uh, you know, I think there's a, probably a better chance of the Senate acting first on something uh, given the makeup of the Senate, um, than um, than the House, you know, now that now it's in Republican hands. But look, um, the point of the matter is we got to do something. And um, you know, what happened to Tyree Nichols is, I mean, words came and described how horrific and and how unjust and how terrible that was. Uh, and um, but it's it's not unique, right? I mean, these things happen all the time in this country. And um, and we we say we're outraged and then we never can get a consensus on taking action. And I and I think that's the you know, the, the problem here. I mean, uh, you know, in Tyree Nichols case, the officers knew that their body cameras were recording uh, and and they and, and they still essentially beat him to death. I mean, um, and, you know, uh, you know, this is not an exclusively black or white. Um, or black versus white thing. I mean, black officers committed a heinous, brutal attack, and there are systemic issues that empower law enforcement officers to act without impunity. And I think, you know, we we have to have a we we, ha we need to find a way to talk about these things without you know getting everybody to retreat to their respective you know sides of the ring. I mean, the bottom line is uh, there are good police officers out there all around the country, but. When things like this happen, and and you know, in this they're tolerated anyway. I mean, it, it really diminishes, you know, um, you know, the, the trust that people have in, in police. But I, yeah, I, I think we're all shocked at what happened. And um, and again, my hope is that uh, some real action may 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 follow. But you certainly don't sound optimistic. Look, I mean, I you know, we've only had a few weeks uh, of this new Congress here in the House, um, and um, it, it, what is very clear here is it's not Republicans who are in charge of the, of the, of the Congress. It is the most extreme right-wing element. The fringe of the Republican Party is in charge. I mean, people who have the most radical right-wing ideas you can imagine. I mean, I've been sitting, we, we, yesterday in the Rules Committee, we, the day before yesterday in the Rules Committee, 
and yesterday on the floor we were debating whether we want to condemn socialism. I mean, that's kind of where their heads are at. Not on, you know, dealing with policing issues, not on dealing with inflation, not on dealing with climate change, but we debated whether we like Joseph Stalin or not, or whether Pol Pot, you know, is somebody we should condemn. I mean, it's like, this is insane, right? So, you know, that's what gives me hesitancy about being optimistic is the first few weeks here have not been particularly, uh, you know, Congress at its best. In that regard, there was a meeting yesterday between the president and Speaker of the House, uh, Kevin McCarthy. And, well, the the sides seem to retreat, in fact, to their different uh, different corners in this uh, in the ring in this boxing match, uh, there wasn't any progress made towards resolving the question of will the United States actually default on its debt and plunge into recession, which is the big question. Uh, what what's your view? Is Congress going to be able to pass a debt ceiling, uh, an increase in the debt ceiling? So Kevin McCarthy is in a bind. Uh, he's in a bind of his own making and. Um, on one hand, I think deep down he knows that we shouldn't politicize the debt ceiling vote um, and that if we default, it is disastrous for our economy. Um, that the real way to resolve disputes over spending is in the budget process, is in the appropriations process. Uh, so I think he instinctively knows that. On the other hand, you know, he's created a, a situation where any one of these right wing members can you know, call to vacate the chair, which means he could potentially be uh, expelled the speaker. Um, he's packed the Rules Committee, which I'm still on. I'm the ranking Democrat on the Rules Committee, with some of the most extreme people you can imagine. I mean, words can't even describe uh, how off the rails some of these people are. Um, and they can bottle things up or they can change things before they go to the floor. So um, so he's, I think, you know, knows that he could do the right thing and maybe lose his speakership or do the wrong thing and ruin the economy, but still be speaker. And so that's the dilemma he's in, but he created this mess. And, um, you know, I think what Biden's trying to do is find him an off-ramp uh, so that uh, we don't come to this moment where, you know, even the threat of defaulting on a debt could have enormous and negative impacts on our economy. Um, you, know, I, um, you know, I always remind people, uh, when Donald Trump was president, and by the way, the four years he was president, we accumulated 25% of the debt we currently have as a nation during his four years of president. President, I didn't like his policies. I vote. I didn't like the tax cut that he passed that helped billionaires and big corporations that added two trillion dollars to the debt. But nonetheless, I voted to increase the debt ceiling because that's the responsible thing to do. You know, when you accumulate bills. Whether I agree with those bills or not, you still got to pay them, and um, and you know, and if you don't, there's all kinds of bad consequences happen. So we need to we, we need to get this done, and then we need to put in a mechanism to take the politics out of out of the debt ceiling. Um, and uh, my hope is we you know we get a more sensible Congress in a couple of years. We we can do that. You use the phrase, Congressman McGovern. Uh, words can't describe. And when we were talking just a few moments ago about uh, Tyree Nichols and our reaction to the beating, uh, to the pummeling, to, to the viciousness of that attack, there's another series of events involving 
the phrase for me, the words can't describe, and that is the mass killings that have gone on in the country unabated in recent weeks and months. And I hate to raise the issue or another issue, which maybe there can't be anything accomplished in the Congress, but is there anything possibly percolating in Congress that would address this question of the mass murders that seem to repeat and repeat and repeat throughout the country? Yeah, well, I mean, we have, you know, uh, more guns, uh, you know, on the street uh, and more assault weapons on the street than any other country in the world. Uh, and um, and the gun lobby still owns a big chunk of Congress. And it's not just Republicans. I mean, although they're wholly owned by the uh, gun lobby, but there's a, a handful of Democrats as well. And um, look, I mean... You know, we, you know, we need to ban assault weapons. I mean, we need to make sure that there are universal background checks that are that are real universal background checks all over this country. You know, we, we, we need more, you know, uh, support for mental health counseling and support services for young people and not so young people. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff we need to do. But every time we you raise the issue of gun violence in this country, you know, the gun lobby comes in and their allies with, you know, and, 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 you know, start all this nonsense that, you know, that everyone's going to be, have their guns taken away from them. Look, I, we can, I have, I have colleagues that walk around with, you know, pins of assault weapons on their lapels. I mean, it, this is, it's, it's sick. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, we, we have a filibuster problem in the Senate and we have a, Republican majority in the House that was financed uh, by the gun lobby. So, look, we need to keep on pushing and we need to keep on talking about this issue and we need to shame people who are silent in the face of all this violence. Um, but, I mean, you know, I've, I've got two kids and my, they're both in their early 20s. You know, I worry about when they go out and go to concerts or go to clubs or, you know, or go to places where there's lots of people and yeah, you know, in a way, we're living in a country where you have to worry about going to church, you know, or going to synagogue, or going to a mosque, or going to the movies. I mean, this is this is crazy, and uh, you know, and I, and again, we 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 have to find ways of having rational discussions to try to bring people on board who, quite frankly, you know, haven't always been there, and it's it's doable. But it takes a lot of work, and there are a lot of young people out there. Uh, there are a lot of uh, uh, family members who lost loved ones to gun violence who are out there uh, working this issue. But we all this 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 needs to be an issue that people vote on. Congressman McGovern, I know you have to run, so let me give you one last question, if I might. Congress did pass a modest gun control uh, right. reform bill uh, during the first uh, two years of the Biden presidency. Is there any possibility of that being repeated? And I think this more politicized looking towards 2024 Congress, or is that really just a just a just a forlorn hope of mine? And I think we have to try. I think we have to try. Um, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I I don't want to sound like a like I'm a downer here. Like I'm, you know, that all things are negative. Look, I, I believe that people, you know, have powers of persuasion, uh, but it requires, I think, enormous pressure from the grassroots. 
Um, it, it requires people not simply writing off members who have not always been there with us on these issues, but actually trying to re-engage them. Um, and and you know, and I and I'm a, I'm a believer in, in the power and the and the persuasiveness of of stories of real life stories. And and I think you know you have a lot of members of Congress who live fairly privileged lives who have you know some of the people here are you know have have, have been privileged their entire life have never been exposed to uh, the realities of gun violence in this country. Uh, sometimes they need to be told by families who have you know what it feels like and how awful it is. And maybe you can move somebody, but look, we we can never ever give up. My my, you know, I, I'm I'm in my Washington office, um, and I've got a, a, a big picture of my friend, the late John Lewis, who used to always say, you know, never never, never give in and never give up. I mean, you just got to keep at it um, because they're counting on us to get tired. Uh, the opposition is counting on us to just move on to something else. You know, our responsibility is to stay focused. And if, you know, if we get something done this year, great. But we got to try it. But if it takes two years, three years, four years, five years, we got to stick with it until until we prevail. Uh, and um, so, uh, so I'm not giving up hope that we can't do something in the next couple of years. But I'm what I'm saying is, it may take longer, but it, however long it takes, we need to be in this fight. We've been speaking with Congressman Jim McGovern. Thank you so much for your time, Congressman. Thanks for your representation. It's always great to talk to you. Stay safe. All the best. This has been our new segment. Our House with Congressman Jim McGovern. Our House is a very, very, very fine house. This is Talk the Talk. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. What happened in Memphis, Tennessee, as Congressman Jim McGovern has just described, is in fact beyond words. There are not adequate words. But, of course, the murder, the murder of Tyree Nichols is just one in a series of black men and women who have been murdered by the police. And one aspect of this story that I think has been reported but has been underreported is that the police officers, the five officers who are now charged with murder, and it does appear that they have varying degrees of culpability, they were all part of an elite strike force unit called SCORPION, which is an acronym, but the word SCORPION was intentional. Talk about something vicious that can attack and kill. We have with us in the studio two attorneys, Northampton-based attorneys, two of the elite criminal defense and civil rights attorneys in Massachusetts, David Hoos and Luke Ryan. They are partners in the law firm of Sasson Turnbull, Ryan, and Hoos. They had a case in which an elite unit in western Massachusetts played a really important part, and I thought it would be important for our listeners to understand how this works here in our community. So... David or Luke, which one of you can tell us first about that case? David? Well, I'll start, but then I'm going to turn it over to Luke because it was really Luke's case from the onset. Um, and uh, when I first read the articles about Tyree Nichols, uh, I immediately thought of uh, our client, um, uh, whose name was Michael. And um, you you would have to uh, um, reverse all the racial uh, um uh, designations because everyone in our case was white, as I recall, 
Um, our client certainly was, and the main uh, police officers involved were white. Um, but essentially uh, was a <clears throat> young man who was uh, uh, beaten, fortunately was not killed, uh, maybe just through luck, on a cold night in the uh, entertainment district of uh, Springfield. And like so many things these days, it was all captured on people's cell phones, uh, which they turned over uh, to us. And uh, the main thing that, that I recalled about it as soon as I heard Tyree Nichols was that the perpetrators of the assault on Michael were um, members of the Springfield Police Department uh, Street Crime Unit um, who were uh, patrolling the entertainment district dressed like ninjas uh, in black, uh, all black um, uh, uniforms, as I recall it. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Luke, who pro I'm sure has better memory of the details than I do. Yeah, I mean, basically, this was uh, Springfield, like so many municipalities, decided that they were going to put together this uh, group of would-be warriors uh, and uh, people who were the most aggressive in their ranks. They were going to put them into uh, just the most over-policed, uh, impoverished parts of the city, and they were going to go in with an attitude that they were there to, to, to crack skulls and to send a message uh, to uh, all the would-be wrongdoers. And in this particular case, uh, the head of the unit was, at the time, a sergeant named Stephen Kent. Since this incident, uh, which resulted in a, a settlement, uh, Stephen Kent has risen through the ranks. He's become the deputy chief of uh, the Springfield Police Department, and he was somebody who was tasked when the uh, Department of Justice, Bill Barr's Department of Justice, found that the department, uh, the only one in the country during the Trump administration, had a pattern and practice of engaging in, in excessive force and lying about. Stephen Kent was the person who was tasked with um, uh, figuring out which incidents the, the Department of Justice uh, had specified. Anyways, on that particular night, uh, my client was a passenger in a car, and as the car pulled up to a stop sign, um, Stephen Kent told the driver to, to keep it moving. The driver pointed out they were in heavy traffic, had nowhere to go, and it, as the car pulled away, Stephen Kent took out his nightstick or flashlight and smashed the rear taillight of the car. Driver got out, protested, was quickly um, taken into custody, and my client, who was the passenger in that seat, was yanked out by Kent and four of his colleagues, and as it was captured on uh, multiple videos, they proceeded to beat him, to choke him unconscious, and drag him through the snow. And that was um, not just how they were dealing with uh, the, the person that David and I ha happened to represent, that was the message that they were sending to people in, in that part of the city on that particular night, that this was how it was going to be. And um, I think it's emblematic of a mentality uh, behind so many of these just terrible tragedies across the country. Stephen Kent's name is very much in the news, actually, this morning. You will hear it on the station, and on, you will see it in media in coming days, because he is an important part. The report he wrote that the Hamden County District Attorney's Office has refused and refused and refused to turn over to defense lawyers oh, it's in the three years since the Federal Department of Justice uh, issued its findings of a pattern and practice of police abuse in Springfield. They refused to produce Kent's report, but the Springfield Republican has gotten a copy of it, 
and reports on it today. So we'll return to that uh, in, in coming days and coming weeks as well. It's very important, I think, to both policing and law enforcement here in Western Massachusetts. Let's go back to your case. Will Grine, tell us when it was and tell us what happened as a result of your representation, yours and David's representation, and as and of course, significantly, the videos that captured the police brutality back in a time when this was not necessarily common, but was coming to become more common, I think. Sure. So th- this was back in 2011. Um, it was it was a winter night. And um, after it happened, um, you know, we got the, the police report. My client was arrested for the usual uh, uh, charges that people get when they uh, have encounters with the police where they are um, assaulted and, and, and brutalized. He was charged with disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, assault and battery of a police officer. Um, his parents decided that they knew their kid. He'd never been in any trouble of any kind. They went and they combed that district with flyers, did their own investigative work, and they found uh, two people who eventually had recorded this. It was It unfolded on a busy city street. They turned the videos over, and what was one of the most fascinating things was you could see a third videographer go out into the street. You would have had a panoramic view, and as as the police were choking our client unconscious, another officer went up to this third person who was taking a video and seized her um, her phone, took, it, took the phone in, and months ensued without anybody... Um, acknowledging that this seizure took place. There was an internal investigation that eventually disclosed that the seizure had been made, but by the time that we could get to it, the the phone had been uh, scrubbed and there was no evidence that we could use to kind of recreate in more graphic detail, if any more graphic detail was needed, that uh, this had been just a, a, a... clear-cut case of police brutality. Um, The Hamden DA's office, I think, decided that they were going to cover the police. They were not going to dismiss the charges, notwithstanding the video evidence. They were going to make our our client go to trial and risk all the, you know, the dangers and risks associated with that. Um, Fortunately, he was acquitted at trial, and then uh, we, we ended up bringing a civil rights lawsuit against Stephen Kent and members of that unit. With what result? Uh, we settled on the the eve of trial. Uh, I it was I, I think it was for I think it was for one hundred seventy five thousand uh, dollars. This was a, about ten years or so ago. I should note that in this lawsuit that I mentioned against the Hamden County District Attorney's Office, a petition at the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts, the Supreme Court is now going to review the case that was just decided this last week of course, over the objection of the Hamden County DA's office who opposed the case being reviewed by the full court, the full Supreme Judicial Court. Again, uh, that report, which has been withheld, is now in the public sphere. I'd like to make one comment, and I want to take a quick break, which is that in that case, I learned a, f- a word, a phrase, that I hadn't known before, which was the trifecta. The trifecta is... The word that is used when someone is brought in as a defendant in Hamden County, specifically in Springfield, and a defendant is charged with disorderly conduct, one, resisting, two, an assault and battery on a police officer, three, the trifecta, indicating that this is a person who 
you better look for what the police did to assault him or her. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We continue our conversation with attorneys Luke Ryan and David Hoos. We're talking about elite units, elite police units, what they do and how they operate, both in Memphis and throughout the country, including in Springfield, Massachusetts. I'd like to know from you both, because you represented a client who was the victim of one of these elite units, whether what happened in Springfield resulted in the same kind of action that happened in Memphis, which is, was the unit disbanded? Did the uh, police, did the administration take uh, ownership of the uh, uh, police brutality and violence, or did the unit just continue? So the the whole thing with the, the units here that I think is fascinating and disturbing is they tend to have a a certain shelf life where they become notorious and then they either quietly disappear disappear, or in the case of the Narcotics Bureau are publicly disbanded. On the one-year anniversary of the publication of the Department of Justice report finding a pattern and practice of police brutality in the Narcotics Bureau, the city of Springfield called a press conference and said, hey, you know what, going forward, this unit no longer exists. We're getting rid of it. Um, At that same uh, press conference, they announced the formation of a new unit called the Firearm Investigations Unit. And just coincidentally enough, every single member of the Narcotics Bureau was transferred over to the Firearms Investigative Unit. So you ha- it's like this shell game where they, they give different titles to the same group of officers. They recruit the officers who in police parlance are active. These are not the guys that sit around in, in cruisers. There's the one going out in the street. They're the ones making arrests. And the way that they can identify these people generally is by the number of citizen complaints they rack up. So this is where they recruit from. They grab the people who are out there um, causing the most damage. They give them a special title. They give them uh, a, a unit that they periodically change the name of. But the, the job description is the same. It's to go out there and to be very, very aggressive uh, against the people who have the least uh, ability to, to defend themselves. And Luke Ryan, in the case of Springfield, who are they that are making this decision and choosing these people? Well, they have their, they have a police commissioner named Cheryl Claproot. I'm sure David could talk to uh, about uh, the commissioner uh, who's who's been there uh, forever. Um, but uh, that, uh, I think, in conjunction with the mayor, with um, the, the leadership there of, of the department, they're the ones who I think operationally have command and control. But uh, I think it starts with the top who uh, um, has been Cheryl Claproot since uh, Chief, uh, Commissioner Barbary left. What's the theory? Why is there some belief that if you terrorize a local community that somehow there will be less crime? What, I don't get it. Yeah, well, uh, I, I think it, I, I think that it sort of uh, originates from the language, the terminology we use to, quote unquote, fight uh, crime. Um, we've all heard the phrases war on drugs, war on crime. 
and these, w- w- when we talk in that language, I think the obvious consequences of it are, well, if this is a war, then anything is legitimate. Certainly violence is uh, legitimate. It's a war. Um, so I think that that's kind of at the root uh, uh, of all this. Um and, uh, you know, as Luke pointed out, I mean, the, these, these uh, groups tend to morph uh, uh, in name and in ostensibly what their function is, but it's essentially the same thing. Um, I've been around the Springfield Police Department for over 40 years, and uh, I can remember when the current chief, or I guess she's now called the commissioner, uh, Cheryl Crapwood, was a member of what we called then the crime I almost, I almost got it wrong. Crime Prevention Bureau, and I almost said what we used to call it back in the day, the Crime Perpetration Bureau. Um, but uh, it was essentially the same sort of outfit as, that is now called the Narcotics Bureau, then called the Firearms uh, uh, Investigation Bureau, uh, and um, you know, an offshoot of which was the Street Crimes Unit, which, as I've already said, uh, went so far as to actually dress them in all-black uh, ninja-style uniforms. Uh, Let me conclude by asking you both, David Hoos and Luke Ryan, is there any hope for resolution or at least amelioration of this process that you've described? And does it matter in, whether a department is big or small? I guess those are two different questions, but I'd appreciate your final thoughts. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to, it's hard not to be pessimistic at a time like this, uh, to be honest, uh, you know, where you, you know, you, you live through something like, uh, the George Floyd murder and the aftermath and you, you see the pendulum swing in a, in a certain direction. And then, um, you know, we lived through a last election cycle where, uh, crime was, was a big driver and, and a get tough mentality was, was the prescription for um, what ailed us. So it's cyclical. Uh, the, I think the hope is over time, as you take steps forward and back, you eventually make progress. But the, the, the warrior mentality within police forces and the budgets of police forces, they're such a big part of our lives. Um, you know, those are, those are two things that, that make it really, really hard to see change. So unless we address just the footprint that they have in, in, in so many lives, it's hard to think that, you know, we're going to get a different result um, throwing that many resources into an institution that has such fundamental flaws. Yeah. Um, Luke just hit the nail on the head there with the use of the term footprint, one of my uh, favorite terms. Uh, as you know, I was on the uh, Northampton Policing Review Commission and uh, one of the things that I and the commission, I believe in its final report, repeatedly said that there was a need to reduce the footprint uh, of the police. And uh, in my work with the commission, um, I took responsibility for this issue of traffic um, enforcement. And um, probably a topic for a, a, another show, but, um, uh, you know, the Supreme Court has basically authorized these protectual stops uh, said that they're okay, which is what happened to, to Tyree Nichols. So we need to start by saying that that is not okay, as our Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court has said. You cannot uh, stop one on the pretext that they've committed a, a, a traffic offense. Um, but really, the next step in that is to remove police from all traffic enforcement, except that which clearly presents a danger 
uh, to the public. Um, this case, where in, in which you know the, the as you have pointed out, Bill, um, all of the perpetrators are black, shows that while racism is a huge uh, a factor in this, and sometimes the driving force in many of these incidents really goes beyond race. This is a question of policing and the police culture. And the only solution, I think, is to reduce the footprint of the police. We're going to leave it there. David Hoos and Luke Wine, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for all you do. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. You love your car. We all do. It's part of our DNA. If your vehicle gets into an accident, the people to turn to are the collision experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. Fort Hill lets you leave your concerns at the door. They'll fix your vehicle to better than factory standards and deal with your insurance company from start to finish. Fort Hill is locally owned and operated. They're part of the community and they guarantee the work they do every time. Trust Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9, Amherst, and online at forthillcs.com. At the Northampton Survival Center, we believe that no one should choose between paying bills or buying food. In the Northampton Survival Center, creemos que nadie debería elegir entre pagar sus cuentas o comprar alimentos. We supply free groceries for people in 18 Hampshire County communities in a safe outdoor distribution. Proveemos comestibles gratis a personas en 18 comunidades del condado de Hampshire en una distribución segura y al aire libre. For information about grocery pickup or delivery, call 413 586-6564 or visit NorthamptonSurvival.org Para información sobre recogida o entrega de comestibles llame al 413-586-6564 o visítenos en NorthamptonSurvival.org If the challenges of the past year have left you needing help we are here for you Si las dificultades del año pasado lo han llevado a necesitar ayuda estamos aquí para usted Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. We're about engaging in place, this place. Find us online at northamptonneighbors.org or call us at 413-341-0160.
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And this is our Reverend and the Rabbi segment, which we we, we share with you every Thursday. Uh, we will get our intro music down for the new show, I promise. We have with us today the Reverend Andrea Vazian, who's on the ministerial team at the Alden Baptist Church in Springfield. She is also the director of the Sojourner Truth School for Social Change Leadership. She was also a presenter at the recent event, 300-plus people attended by Zoom, titled, Why Reparations? Why Northampton? Why Now? I'd like to turn your attention, Reverend, uh, Reverend Andrea, to those three questions. Let's do them in order. Why reparations? Why Northampton? And why now? Why reparations? Why reparations is a good question, and the reparations movement is sweeping across this country. And so let me begin by answering why reparations by quoting ta Coates in his now famous 2014 essay in The Atlantic magazine, which was entitled The Case for Reparations. Coates writes, until we reckon, reckon with our compounding moral debts, America will never be whole. Perhaps no statistic better illustrates the enduring legacy of our country's shameful history of treating black people as sub-citizens, sub-Americans, and sub-humans than the wealth gap. Reparations would seek to close this chasm, but as surely as the creation of the wealth gap required the cooperation of every aspect of the society, bridging it will require the same. So reparations offers us a much-needed way to repair for stolen land, stolen labor, stolen lives, and stolen power. Okay, so I understand the historical argument for reparations. A huge injustice, an almost unfathomable injustice was done. We had an institution called slavery. We chattel slavery. We treated people like property. We take kids away from their parents and sell them as if they were a piece of anything. Horrifying. Why Northampton? The second question. Why Northampton uh, is, is also a very good question, and we really need to thank the David Ruggles Center for History and Education and Historic Northampton for uncovering for us and putting before us, which was material and information that was suppressed or denied for so very long. Northampton has to wrestle with our history of owning prominent women and men, community leaders, Lawyers, pastors actually were enslavers in this country, and there was even there's even a church in our the Edwards community, church. the Edwards Church, named after the Reverend John Edwards, who professed that slavery was wrong and cool and cruel. That's what he preached, but he was himself an enslaver of at least four African individuals. He owned slaves. More. And he owned slaves. He was an enslaver, and members of, of his church were as well. And we need to deal with the fact that enslavers in this city, in Northampton, are very familiar to us because our streets are named after the enslavers. Parsons, Strong, Pomeroy, Lyman, Henshaw, Clapp, Clark, Dwight, Hawley, Stoddard, and Wright, to name just a few. So our history has been the, Those are former... Residents of Northampton who owned slaves? All of them. All of them. Wow. And the Edwards Church, the Reverend Jonathan Edwards, preached against it and owned enslaved people. So let me ask you this, Reverend Andrew Vazian. Uh, the third question posed for this panel, which you presented, was why now? So let me ask you that. Why now? Well, I think that is a good question, but I think a better question was posed by the esteemed teacher Rabbi Hillel, if not now, when? 
And I'm also thinking of Dr. King, who wrote from his jail cell in the Birmingham jail in April 1963, for years now I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with a piercing familiarity. This wait has almost meant never. And why now is because a movement is sweeping this country and Northampton wants to be on the right side of history. We want Northampton, which prides itself on being people of goodwill, people who care about the world. We often claim that we are a progressive community. I think our hearts are in the right place, but we have to actually join with a movement that is across the country from Evanston to Asheville to East Hampton to Amherst. We want to be on the right side of history and say reparations in this community and now. Well, let me ask you about an aspect of that, because the proposal that's going to go in front of the Northampton City Council this month is not for reparations. It's for a commission to study reparations. And I suspect that one question is, should there be reparations? Let's just assume the answer to that is yes, for the reasons you've described for us this morning. Do you have some idea what the form reparation should take? What, is the, what, is, what does it mean? Reparations is meant to close the wealth gap. That is the uh, critical aspect of reparations. I've brought with me the Bible about reparations, which is From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century by William Darity and Kirsten Mullen. And they say that reparations must have three parts. This is according to the experts. A, acknowledgement or truth-telling, full acknowledgement of the harms done, our redress, which is tangible, material repair, and C, closure. This is ARC, according to the experts. Closure is a commitment by offending parties to non-repetition of wrongdoings. What reparations will feel like and look like in Northampton is yet to be determined, and it needs to be determined by a multiracial, multiethnic group. So Andrea Vazian sitting here or a predominantly white reparations committee cannot make that judgment now, but it must involve repair and it must involve addressing the wealth gap. So it will unfold, and we will yet learn what that, what that looks like. The communities across the country, from Providence to Evanston to Asheville to Amherst and East Hampton, have all made different decisions, and their decisions are pretty wildly different about what their reparations proposals are. In my mind, none of them are perfect, and ours won't be either but it is important to take a stand and take a step. So I am not any longer looking for perfection. Early on, I looked at the Providence reparations proposal and realized that many, many white Providence residents can apply for reparations. That's not really what reparations is meant to be. Evanston's is sort of a housing subsidy. None of them in my mind are perfect. Ours won't be either. That should not prevent us from studying the situation and making reparations. I'd like to ask you about your study as a reverend. When you look at the Bible, do you find a case, an injunction from God or in the Holy Word that reparations should be, there should be reparations? Well, that's a very big question, and yes... And, and I'm going to give you a full two minutes to answer it. The <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> reparations are biblical. So... Actually, there are many examples in the Bible of reparations. In Exodus 3, there's a, an example of a 
Hebrews being emancipated, emancipated and told to take spoils from the Egyptians. In Deuteronomy, there is in Deuteronomy 15, there is a whole reparations about if you have enslaved people, set them free with a bounty from your wine press, a bounty from all your resources. There is a remarkable story in the book of Ezra in chapters 1 and 6 where the new King Cyrus, who had nothing to do with the sacking of the temple in Jerusalem, nothing to do with it, it's 70 years later, he's not culpable and he's not guilty, releases the Israelites to return home to Jerusalem and then instructs all the people to give them gold, silver, animals, valuable gifts, and he raids his own coffers and gives them reparations. And that was two generations after the sacking of the temple. And there is an example in the New Testament, in Luke 19, when Jesus goes to Jericho and meets Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus, who is despised, he is a chief tax collector, and he's despised and hated by the, um, by the community. And Jesus says, I will dine with you, which is, of course, scandalous. And then Zacchaeus says to him, and he is a corrupt person, if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay them back four times as much. And he says, Jesus says, you are truly a son of Abraham. There are many examples in the I was Bible. worried about that son of, but son of Abraham, good, we're good. <laughs> Remember, I was quoting Jesus. Okay, got it. So if you could be careful of that, Phil and Buzz, I was quoting Jesus. No, no, just, just a momentary, son of a momentary lapse. Yes, there was a momentary lapse. There are many examples in the Bible, and they are varied, and they are deep, and they are rich. I have preached on this, and I serve a predominantly black church in Springfield, the Alden Baptist Church, and the questions that arise are, why not in Springfield? How do we follow what's happening in Northampton? And also sometimes the questions are, why is this news to us? Why is this news to us? Why is this the first sermon on reparations we have ever heard? Reparations are biblical, my friend, and the reparations movement is sweeping the country. So we need to get busy and we need to be on the right side of history. And you're optimistic we will be here in Northampton? I'm very optimistic. I think that there's a groundswell, and I think we're going to make some good decisions and move forward with vigor and with vision. And we're going to leave it there. We have been speaking on this edition of The Reverend and the Rabbi with Reverend Andrea Vazian, part of the ministerial team at the Alden Baptist Church and the director of the Sojourner Truth School for Social Change Leadership. Reverend Andrea, thanks so much for being with thank us today. Thank you for having me. Ditto, ditto. Both of you, thank you for having me. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And thank you for joining us on the show on behalf of me, Buzz Eisenberg, and my colleague, Bill Newman. And this is a wonderful part of the week. It has been for a long time for me. This is when uh, our science guy, Brian Adams, brings us all sorts of stuff. And Brian, today is... Groundhog Day. So you happy Groundhog Day to everyone. Punxsutawney Phil saw his shadow, right? He did. So he did. So that means six more weeks of winter. Uh, now, if you're doing the math, Punxsutawney has been around for 135 years, and it's the same groundhog, believe it or not. <laughs> um, he, t I guess, 
his longevity is credited to drinking this elixir of life, which only club members know about. <laughs> um, and he takes a sip every summer at a picnic, and it magically gives him seven more years of life. So anyway. I ask you as a scientist, how does he report I, whether he saw it or well, not? Well, uh, who cares, right? Because he's right 39% of the time um, over the last 130 plus years, which means you're more likely to get a good result by flipping a coin than listening to Patuk's... Well, what, it's what, better what, percentage than how often I'm right in disagreements with my wife. That is very. That is probably very true. Um, groundhogs, also known as woodchucks, uh, they are one of the true uh, New England hibernators. Very few mammals actually hibernate in New England. It's uh, I think it's a little brown bat, a couple species of jumping mice, and the groundhogs or the woodchucks. That's it. So nobody else hibernates. And woodchucks go into this deep hibernation. I mean, it's amazing. Their heartbeat goes from like 80 beats a minute to four or five. Their temperature is just a little above freezing. I mean, it's a pretty, pretty amazing thing, uh, thing that they do, this unconscious sleep, this lowered metabolism, a way to make it, uh, make it through winter. We think of sometimes uh, bears as hibernators, and bears aren't. They go through something called torpor, which is sort of reduced rate of metabolism and all. But they wake up. Mom wakes up and gives birth, and nurses are young and all that stuff. So hooray for groundhogs, our true hibernators. Hooray for Punxsutawney Phil. He saw his shadow. Six more weeks of winter, but I'm sorry, yeah, uh, until spring. But uh, whatever it is, six weeks or not six weeks, it's still right around the corner. And when we think about spring, we think about rebirth and renewal and and love, and also our outdoor spaces. And when a lot of us think about outdoor spaces, we think about uh, lawns. And we have someone today who's going to talk a lot about lawns. Owen Wormser is our guest. Owen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Owen is a landscape designer. He is the owner of Abound Design in uh, Conway uh, and does a wonderful job in trying to get out there and think about lawns and how we can reclaim that space. Um, and, you know, let's begin with this whole issues of Americans' obsession with lawns, Owen. You wrote a book, Lawns into Meadows, Growing a Regenerative Landscape. It's a wonderful book. And you make the case that lawns are these biological wastelands and wreak havoc with natural ecosystems. Tell us about lawns and some of the work that you do in sort of reclaiming that space. So America's ended up with an area the size of Washington State that is mowed turf. So if you accumulated all the lawn and put it in one place, it would cover all of Washington State. Uh, the amount of inputs that are required, whether it's time, money, labor, you know, all of these different things that go into maintaining lawns, it's a massive amount of energy that goes into it. And one of the main shortcomings of lawns is that they are a monoculture and also a lot of chemicals and a lot of um, hydrocarbons are used to maintain them. So they have a very negative impact on an ecological level, and that adds up um, across the board in many ways. So what is the solution? So one alternative that my book is about is putting meadows in place of lawns. Lawns do serve um, a purpose in, in certain cases, certainly if you're playing on them or you use them 
for recreation in any way, also pathways, certain things like that, they have a lot of value, but most lawns aren't used at all. You know, a lot of lawn is never even walked on. And so a significant portion of the lawns in this country aren't really necessary. And if those lawns were turned into something that had more ecological value, like a meadow, it would have a really big impact um, across the country. So when you talk about um, ecological benefits of meadows, uh, what, are, what are some of those benefits? Well, one really interesting benefit is that it's, meadows are a carbon sink, whereas lawns have really shallow uh, roots. The grass, uh, most grass roots only reach somewhere between four, eight inches into the ground. A lot of meadow plants have the ability to send roots down 10, 15 feet into the earth, and they sequester a lot of carbon. So all the studies of grasslands have shown that they're um, able to sequester carbon on a scale that's similar to forests and oceans. So that's an enormous um, advantage to having meadows, but they also provide a lot of habitat to animals. Pollinators are the most uh, are the best known uh, animals that benefit from meadows, but they really support the whole food chain because they support a lot of small uh, vertebrates, and that really is what the food chain is built on. And what what sort of plants? When you think about when I think about meadows, I sort of think about wild and unkempt and uh, um, but what, but, and, and that, that is sort of an anathema to, to suburban living, right? I mean, is there a pushback? People are saying, oh, I want my, my lawn to be, look nice and to be, um, beautiful and orderly and stately. And yet you're, you're advocating replacing it with this sort of wild habitat. Is there a pushback from neighbors if people want to convert lawns into meadows? Absolutely. In, in certain municipalities and, and certain homeowners associations, it's actually illegal to get rid of your lawn. And it's put Ill, in, illegal. Illegal to oh get rid of your lawn and put in a meadow. So there's a lot of uh, concern uh, from lawn lovers and sort of more conventionally oriented people around putting something like a meadow in in place of a lawn. But really, um, if they're done well, they're beautiful and they're pretty orderly. They're incredibly low maintenance. A meadow only needs to be mowed once a year once it's established. And they can be very orderly from an aesthetic perspective. So if the plants, the meadow plants are all the same height um, and there's a lot of grasses, then they tend to be very attractive. And with all of the color that you can put in a meadow, they really can win people over in the long run. And what are some of the plants that are meadow plants? So some of the better-known ones are black-eyed Susans, which are Rudbeckia, um, Echinacea, Coneflower is another plant, uh, Leatris is a plant that um, does well in meadows. There's really hundreds of native meadow plants that are candidates for meadows. And those plants that I just mentioned are some of the um, better known ones that also work pretty uniformly on most sites. Um, let's talk about the work that you do. How, how do you actually do this conversion of, uh, of lawns or other space into a meadow? It sounds easier said than done, right? The real underpinning, the most important detail in establishing a meadow is getting the species that you're choosing to match the site and the site conditions very specifically. So you want to understand your site 
and understand moisture levels and soil quality, all of these different environmental factors so that you can then choose species that will thrive on that site. That's really the most important part of, of getting a meadow to establish. And then there's a number of different ways to actually prep the site. It can range from completely stripping out grass or tilling grass under and starting with a blank slate to seeding into lawn itself. I installed um, a meadow at the Eric Carl Museum some years back, and we had to install it into existing lawn because it, it's in an uh, existing apple orchard and we weren't able to till it or strip out the grass without potentially disturbing those roots. And so we uh, seeded directly into the turf and that uh, actually worked really well. So there's a lot of different ways to go about establishing a meadow. And as long as you match the species to the site, there's a pretty good chance you'll have success. We're talking with Owen Wormser. Owen is a landscape designer, owner of Abound Design in Conway. And uh, with us talking about this conversion of lawns into meadows and the value of sort of wild spaces for pollinators, for native plants, for ecological benefits. Owen, you grew up off the grid in northern Maine, which sounds pretty interesting. Can you talk about that and how it sort of influenced your line of work and the direction that you're, you're in right now? Yeah, I grew up in a relatively unusual situation because my parents were back to the landers and they ended up uh, raising me in a house that was half a mile from our nearest neighbor and I grew up without electricity. So that put me in close proximity to the natural world just by, by circumstance. And fortunately, that's something that I have an affinity for and started to be interested in when I was a child. So a lot of the work that I do now is really an outgrowth of, of my childhood and my connection to nature. Uh, and what brought you to Western Massachusetts? I went to UMass to study landscape architecture at the landscape architecture program there. Uh -huh. And the Conway School of Landscape Design is also in this area, right? Which is a marvelous place for folks looking to incorporate their dreams and into into work. Can you talk a little bit about your education and what how other people could get involved in this? Yeah, when I went to UMass, uh, the program was still pretty focused on modernism and postmodernism. There was very little ecological focus in the program. Hold on, what that sounds like all. that sounds like paintings postmodernism. What what is that? So these are all just sort of uh, areas of design focus and with uh, Postmodern and and modernist design. There's a lot of uh, a lot of focus on clean lines and lack of ornamentation. And a lot of what we've seen in the 20th century are outgrowths of of those um, approaches. And my interest has always been on ecological design, which is what the Conway School of Landscape Design teaches. And now that's become far more common in the landscape architecture field. So now UMass actually addresses that in great depth. Um, I didn't get to experience that as a student, but this is something that I, I have pursued in my own practice. And the goal is really to, um, to connect people with the landscape as much as possible. Uh, let's, talk, let's go back to this whole issue of bringing pollinators into the landscape. Um, so pollinators are mainly insects, is that right? And what role do they play and what plants are really pollinator-friendly plants? When people think of pollinators, you know, the most 
uh, commonly thought of pollinators, probably the monarch butterfly, which is a great sort of mascot for pollinators. But there's a really wide range of insects that pollinate plants. And we're talking wasps, bees, moths, beetles. There's a whole slew of, of insects, including flies. Um, in this country alone, there's 4,000 native bees that are... 4,000? 4,000 oh that are pollinators. And so when you plant native plants, you're able to support these thousands of species that rely on nectar and pollen from, from those plants. We are talking with Owen Wormser. Owen is a landscape designer, owner of a bound design in Conway, Massachusetts, talking about converting our lawns into meadows on this Groundhog Day. Yes, we have six more weeks of winter, maybe more, and this weekend's going to be cold, cold, cold. But spring is around the corner and encouraging listeners to look at their landscapes and their lawns and think about what they can do with that. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back. Oh, lay me down in forest lawn, they understand there. They have a heavenly choir and a military band there. Just put me in their care, I'll find my comfort there. With 16 planes and a last salute, they'll drop across in a parachute. I More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. What, what I'm trying to communicate is that there are many, many layers of, of safety management in place at Eversource to ensure that we reduce as much risk as, as possible. Does the Bliss Street Station intentionally vent gas regularly? Because I can tell you that it vents gas. Pretty much every time I've gone to that area, I have smelled gas. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. If only there were an indoor, climate-controlled farmer's market every day of the year. Oh, but there is. At State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits, farmers are bringing in their best from the field, orchards, and greenhouses every day. The best of the crop from wherever the crop is best, starting with fiddleheads and asparagus, all the way through berry season, corn, and into the root veggies, and hothouse stuff to get you through a New England winter. Plus, you can grab a bottle of burgundy or bourbon. And since it's open every day of the year, it's like a farmer's market every day of the year. But no rain, no snow, no heat wave, and they open at 6.30 a.m. every day of the year. Those are farmer's hours. Since the market is inside the building, there's plenty of room to park in the lot. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on the corner of State and Center in downtown Northampton. It's like an indoor farmer's market every day of the year. If your Spanish-speaking employees spoke better English, would that be good for business? If your English-speaking employees spoke a little Spanish, would that be good for business? The International Language Institute delivers workplace language training, improving communication among coworkers and with customers. You get financial assistance with the Massachusetts Workplace Training Express Fund. They cover 50 to 100% of the cost. So let's get going. Call or email the International Language Institute in downtown Northampton. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. We are back, and I am learning. I'm learning about landscaping. I'm learning about what, what's bad about lawns and what's good about meadows, except 
Brian, I really don't know what a meadow is. Uh, well, that's why we have Owen Wormser with us today. Owen is a landscape designer, owner of a bound design. And you know what my mother used to say, Buzz? I do not. You keep your eyes and ears open, and you'll learn something every day. I, and that's that, what that explains. Sh- you. That explains it. That's what this show is all about. Owen, let's start with that. What is a meadow? Really, a meadow is an area that is predominantly grass with also flowering plants usually that doesn't contain woody plants, i.e. trees and shrubs. So um, the Great Plains are grasslands. Those are technically meadows. Prairie is meadow. The steppes of Asia could be called meadows. Savanna could be called meadows. So there are all these words, and really they're all grasslands on the East Coast, Meadows were historically maintained by either grazing or fire pre-settlement from uh, Europe. So at this point in time on the East Coast, the way to maintain a meadow is either fire or mowing because where we live, trees and shrubs want to take over. So in order to keep something as grass, it needs to be maintained at least once a year. And then in the absence of trees and shrubs, you have these grasses and that's a meadow. You know, it's interesting. We think about about um, 150, 200 years ago in New England, and we were a landscape of meadows, of grasslands. I mean, we were a deforested landscape. You think, oh, you know, it's it was so much wilder back then, and it really wasn't. I mean, in the mid 18 or early 1800s, there were no deer, there were no bear, there were no ground. Maybe there were groundhogs, but there were. <laughs> Um, it was a landscape um, that was really a cultural, cultural grasslands, uh, and to maintain a meadow, you really have to have to, like you said, you got to burn it, you got to graze it, you got to do something, right? Yes, and historically, those meadows were grazed, and in most cases, overgrazed, and there was an absence of native species in most of those meadows. A lot of uh, imported grasses and species dominated those meadows. So the meadows that I'm advocating people plant use native plants. And because we're not grazing sheep on them, they're able to grow to their full height, unlike they did in the 19th century. So at this point in time, um, if you plant a meadow and you let it reach its full height, then it produces a lot of uh, flowers, but also a lot of seed and food for wildlife in general, not just pollinators. Let's talk about food. Um, in your landscape design, a lot of people are going to be interested in incorporating fruit and vegetable plots into that. How, do, how does that work? Well, you can fit um, something like that directly into a meadow pretty easily. You just need to give up a little bit of the footprint uh, to, the, to um, the space you need for planting edible plants. Um, when dur- During break, uh, Bill Newman was uh, remaining a little unconvinced, Bill, uh, about this conversion of lawns into meadows because of this neighbor pushback that, you know, w- if, if you're in a suburban area, whether you're in Amherst or Northampton or town, and you've got everybody's got their lawns, everybody looks about the same, and then all of a sudden here's this outlier with a meadow, and people are like, oh, they're not taking care of their lawn, they're not mowing, oh, it looks wild, oh, it looks crazy. So let's get back uh, again to this pushback. I mean, how do you convince neighbors or other folks that, you know, this is ecologically and and uh, artistically and aesthetically and naturally what what is what is the right thing to do. 
Well, the amount of pushback that comes from that is slowly lessening, but it's still pretty intense. It's legal to do this in a lot of places. So one of the most convincing ways to do it is to create something that's beautiful. And so when you're planting from seed in a public location, it can take three, four years for a perennial native meadow from seed to really fully establish. So one approach that I use is I'll use live plants. I'll use small perennials that come in trays. They're called landscape plugs. And that allows a relatively large number of plants to be used and to fill out an area without paying full price for plants. They're usually about $1.50, $2 a plant. And next to City Hall in Northampton, we did, we uh, volunteers uh, that did all that work, um, they, we planted a meadow next to City Hall on a slope that was unused, and we planted these landscape plugs to fill out that area. We did a trial plot initially, and it was for the exact reason um, that we're discussing, where there was some skepticism around how it would actually look. So we put in a trial plot. It performed well over the course of two years, and then the city allowed us to plant the rest of that slope. And because we use live plants, it filled out quickly, and it's convincing to people who are more skeptical about this. If we had done that from seed, it probably wouldn't be as, uh, as attractive as it is um, in the short term. You know, it's, I think a lot of this is redefining aesthetics and what it means to be beautiful. And, you know, you see that a lot in, in energy stuff. I mean, uh, you know, looking at a landscape full of wind turbines as beautiful or photovoltaics on houses as beautiful and now redefining the, beautiful, the beauty of, of urban or suburban landscapes, that lawns are not beautiful, but meadows are. Um, we have just about a minute and a half left. Can you talk about um, how people can get in touch with you and the, the scope of your work and, uh, and, and uh, again, how, how you can um, get your work out there? Sure. I do a lot of residential design in the area, and you can see my work at my website, which is abounddesign.com. It's A-B-O-U-N-D. And it's a great website. You learn design. a lot. So abounddesign is all one word, .com. And you can look at um, a lot of my work there. And then there's a lot of public projects that you can see. I mentioned that meadow next to City Hall. Um, I designed the project in front of Hungry Ghost Bread in Northampton on State Street and also the Hitchcock Center, the grounds there. Um, I've done extensive work um, there as well. I love the uh, the um, Hungry Ghost Bakery design with the sculpture there, and you know you get great bread, you get a little bit of pollinator meadow. Uh, it's a it's a it's a place to go. So. Well, I just have a, Owen Wormser. If people want, if they're thinking about landscaping, is now a good time in the dead of winter to contact you? It is. It's one of the best times to get in touch with me, and one of the best times to plan for what you want to do with your landscape. Because we have six more weeks of winter. Is that right, Brian? Uh, 39% of the time. But what's his name again? <laughs> Punk Satani Phil is right, <laughs> which means mostly he's wrong. So who knows? Maybe winter will come early. Uh, stay or stay. Well, spring will come early. We're in the middle of winter. Um, so we shall see. We've been talking with Owen Wormser. Owen is a landscape designer. He's the owner of Abound Design. Owen, thank you so much. Uh, and really encouraging folks to look at their lawns as uh, as something that could be transformed into something even more beautiful than that. Again, Owen, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thank you, Brian. And we'll be back, Buzz, with... 
with Ruth Griggs. She's going to have Bruce Nimzik. She's going to have Pat Oss. They went on a jazz cruise. We're going to hear all about it right after these messages. Stay with us. And the limb on the tree, and the tree in the hole, and the hole in the ground, and the green grass grew all around, all around. The green grass grew all around. Now on that twig, there was a nest, the prettiest little nest that you ever did see. Now the nest on the twig, and the twig on the. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Wind chill advisories are up and warming shelters are open throughout the weekend as a significant cold front moves across New England Friday night into Saturday. Warming shelters are open at the Mana Community Center in Northampton, the Northampton Police Department and Senior Center, the South Hadley Public Library, Kate's Kitchen in Holyoke, and several other locations throughout the valley. More information about Massachusetts warming shelters can be found by calling the United Way hotline at 211. Forming a reparations committee is on the agenda at tonight's Northampton City Council meeting. The council is expected to introduce the resolution sponsored by Councillor Garrick Perry and Councillor-at-Large Jim Lagore, along with Councillor-at-Large Marissa Elkins, that would look into racial injustices against black residents and workers in the city. According to the Gazette, the reparations committee listed four demands as part of its petition to investigate the historical and current effects of enslavement and racism in Northampton, to make recommendations for reparations, to issue a formal apology, and to fund the proposed commission's research and publish its findings. A new 109-room hotel could be coming to Con Street in Northampton. Hotelier Monser Galaboff is proposing an extended-stay hotel with two additional retail structures at the location of the former Delhi Hampshire Gazette building. Galaboff says the project would bring 50 new jobs to the city. Mayor Gina Louise Shera is recommending the council approve a tax increment financing plan, and the city council is expected to discuss the matter tonight. Mostly sunny, breezy today, relatively mild, a high of 34 to 38. Scattered clouds tonight, breezy, overnight lows of 6 to 12. Sunny and a gusty wind here on Friday, high temperatures 14 to 18, but the wind chill will make it feel like it's below zero much, if not all of the day. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis on 101.5 WHMP. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me Saturdays at 9.30 a.m. as we shine a light on justice-involved underdogs, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a path back into society and prove that failure isn't final. Unlock your future. Rewrite your story. Tune into The Hustler Files right here on WHMP. Caring for someone with cancer is hard. You're so busy taking care of someone else, you have no idea how you feel. There's so much you can't say. You run on adrenaline. You're worried you're going to burn out. Cancer Connection offers support groups just for caregivers, exercise classes to blow off steam, even Reiki. It's all free. Go to cancer-connection.org to learn more or to donate today. Cancer Connection relies on local donations to make its services free of charge. Personal finance expert Susie Orman warns a broad section of consumers is already in a recession, if not a depression. Orman says her research shows 67% of consumers now live paycheck to paycheck and don't have a spare $400 to pay an emergency expense. Taking your children with you when you go shopping can be extra expensive. 
A study by Slick Deals found that when parents take their kids along, their spending averages about $180 per trip. When they go by themselves, the average bill is only $133. Ford is recalling nearly 383,000 late model explorers and Lincoln aviators along with Lincoln Corsairs with a 360-degree camera. The video output may fail, preventing the rear-view camera image from displaying. This expands and replaces a recall issued in October 2021. I'm Mark Kaufman. Learn more at ConsumerAffairs.com. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Columbia. Yes, it was a wonderful uh, vacation that I had, and uh, glad to be back. Uh, of course, I was in 80-degree temperatures, so uh, it's a little bit of a shock to the system, but uh, I'll I'm try not to, to hate you. <laughs> I'll try not to be envious. So, did you hear some good music when you were down there? Actually, I did not. Uh, I, saw a little <gasps> bit of, I saw a little bit of dance. Uh, I, was, uh, I was by the pool most of the time. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, now that I'm back, uh, I'm going to be getting my uh, a full dose of uh, of great uh, music. There is, and there is so much happening around here right now. Yeah. So what's up with jazz shares right now? Well, thanks for asking. Um, jazz shares is going to be uh, having our next concert on Wednesday, the eighth of February, in Northampton at the Parlor Room with a, a great ensemble called the Ethnic Heritage Ensemble. Kahil El Zabar, who's a veteran. Uh, Chicago-based uh, percussionist um, is uh, leading a trio with uh, Corey Wilkes on trumpet and Alex Harding on baritone saxophone. So we're going to have a full full house there and uh, great music. I've presented Cahill a couple of times over the years with David Murray and uh, other contexts. So yeah, that's really exciting. Yeah. How's Jazz Shares going, generally? It's going great. You know, our, I would say our... Attendance has been down a little bit, you know, because of the pandemic. Um, but our numbers are are great. We have 120 shareholders and uh, a record number of business sponsors. So fiscally, we're in very good health. And uh, the music has been fantastic so far. And uh, we have a lot more to come from That's now great. until June. So who do we have today that we're going to talk with? Today, our guest is Joe Magnarelli, a great uh, trumpeter, improviser, composer, and educator who's been in the business for over four decades. Uh, Mags, as he's known, moved to New York uh, in 1986 and soon joined Lionel Hampton's orchestra. Uh, and that association led to work with Brother Jack McDuff, Toshiko Akiyoshi, John Hendricks, Harry Connick Jr., Ray Barreto, Walt Weisskopf. Wow, this is an all-star cast we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, so he's appeared on 125 recordings and has uh, over 13 as a leader. He also teaches trumpet at Temple and Juilliard and lives in Brooklyn. And uh, on Monday, Joe will be uh, coaching the Northampton High School Jazz Band. And then on Tuesday morning, we'll be joined by the Green Street Trio to play a concert for the entire high school student body. And that work is uh, part of an educational outreach program at the Northampton, uh, run by the Northampton Jazz Festival called the Elliott Ross Jazz Artists in the Schools. 
And uh, then Tuesday night at the Drake in Amherst, the Green Street Trio will perform with uh, Joe Magnarelli beginning at 7.30 p.m. Where I will be sitting and expectantly listening. So, Joe, welcome. Hello, hello. Thank you for calling, and uh, welcome to WHMP and Take 5. Oh, great. uh, Well, that's an an impressive list of collaborators that I mentioned. Uh, Tell us about a couple of them. Who did you spend the most time with? Who had the biggest impact on your career? Um, Well, that's a good question. Um, I have to think about that, but I would say... um, the twenty I played with Charles Davis, one of the great tenor players in New York. We I was in a band for like about twenty years, mm-hmm. and that was you know big for me because you know he played with Kenny Dorham and Philly Joe, and you know played you know he's one of the cats from the fifties and sixties. So that was really great for me to play with him. Of course, playing with Lionel Hampton, uh, I played with Lionel Hampton a long time, actually about six years. But the first two years, I never missed a gig. <laughs> And then after that, I was just a sub, you know, I sub, I sub with him actually until he passed away. And, uh, you know, they, they made, you know, big, you know, impressions on me, um, as far as like my approach to music and, you know, just, you know, just the way that, you know, uh, you know, I mean, I learned from everybody that I played with, but those two people were just like, you know, very important for me. And they must have uh, taken you on tour and uh, traveled the world. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, I tra- I traveled the whole world with Lionel and Ray Barreto and uh, Harry Connick Jr. Yeah, all those people. I traveled, you know, mm-hmm. all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So you've made uh, more than a dozen recordings as a leader, and some of the sidemen you've worked with include uh, Peter Bernstein, Mulgrew Miller, Steve Davis, and Rudy Royston, great players in their own right. Um, how do you put together uh, players for a project? What are you looking for in players to work with? Well, um, what I look for is just vibe, you know, the vibe, you know, like how I get along with them and, uh, you know, what what's the personal relationship because, you know, um, I want as much love in the studio as possible. Um, but to be honest, most of the records I did except for my string record are produced by companies. So the company kind of dictates sometimes who's on the record, um, which, you know, in my case, I can't say that they forced anybody. I mean, it's not like that, but, they, you know, they, they will say, like, why don't you do a record with so-and-so? We know you know them and, uh, you know, you're friends with them. We heard you play there with them, even though they, the the, per, the personnel on the record might not be in, in the band that I'm working with at the time. So it kind of goes like that. The, the producer has a lot to say who's on the record. Mm-hmm. But I, I try I try to make the drum chair my, my you know, <laughs> my choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting, that's the most yeah. Import, most important part of the record. Yeah, me. yeah, yeah. Well, on your latest release, New York Osaka Junction, the drummer right. is Rudy Royston, who's uh, Rudy Royston, right, uh, yeah. top shelf uh, drummer. And it also includes Gary Smolian, who many of us here in the Valley know. Um, from his time living here. But if I could just interrupt for one yeah. minute, this is Buzz, Joe. Why do you say the drummer's the most important member of the cast there? Because uh, jazz music is about rhythm, man. Rhythm is the melody, so the drums are the most important part of the record. You know, if you can't have a stiff drummer on a record, cause it, because when you play it back 10 years later, it sounds stiff. But if you get Jimmy Cobb on the record, 10 mm-hmm. years later, it's still going to be swinging in your car. Mm-hmm. That's the difference. 
Yeah. I love that answer. Very yeah. simple. Yeah, yeah. Very yeah. simple. You know, you just get the drummer that can can make it music dance because that's the kind of music I play. You know, I, I play. I love I love dance music. You know, Philly Joe, Art uh, Blakey, Art Taylor. Uh, you know, Max Roach, uh, Mel Lewis, Elvin Queen, Elvin Jones. Those are my, you know, those are the people I listen to. Stop it. You're making my foot bounce involuntarily right now. (laughs) Right. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's the, that's the, that's the whole point right there. (laughs) Well, I'll see you on Tuesday night and I'm sure I'll be bouncing. Yeah. Yeah. So tell us about that latest release, New York Osaka Junction. It also features, uh, uh, an organ player who you know very well. Yeah, my wife, yes, <laughs> Kiko Saruga. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's um, uh, Nils Winter, the producer of Steeplechase, has been very kind to me the last few years and using me as a sideman. Uh, he, I know he's, he has suggested me on side mandates, which I really appreciate, you know. Um, and then, you know, he asked me uh, if I wanted to do this record as a leader, so I said, yeah, of course, you know, of course. So, uh, um I had my wife playing organ and uh Gary who I you know I've been playing with Gary for you know since the early 90s and Rudy because I I, I don't know Rudy that well but we've played together many times different places and um uh I was so happy that he could make the date cuz he's such a great drummer. Mm-hmm. So uh yeah that's that's how it happened and um it was a very I'll just say one thing about the date it was it was the easiest date I ever did because I was able to uh, practice the music with my wife every day. I would play piano, she would play organ, and we would get all the you know nooks and crannies out of the music, and um, and that was very helpful when we went into the studio because mm-hmm. everything was already you know kind of the groundwork was already tested you know so we just had to go in there and play. Yeah. So um, I I read that you keep up a pretty rigorous practice schedule. How did how did you develop <laughs> your regimen, and has it changed over the years? Oh yeah, changes of course. But uh, I, I would say I, I grew up a basketball player, and I wasn't the most talented athlete or basketball player for that matter. But I worked really hard at it, and I, I was able to play through a couple years in college. And then um, I just kind of took that work ethic to the trumpet because when I started really playing the trumpet, I was only about twenty-one, twenty-two, and uh, most of the people that I went up against in my late twenties and thirties were already had their up together by the time they were 14 15 so i had to really uh you know focus and and practice every day and shut out the world and just do my thing every day and i pretty much kept that going to now other than to, to say that you know sometimes you get so busy you can't really practice so i do i do have weeks where i don't practice i just warm up and go go to work mm-hmm. especially when you're on the road but yeah, when I when I have days off and when I have time to myself, I I try to stick to my regimen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, trumpet's one of the most physically demanding instruments, uh, so practice must be pretty uh, important in maintaining your career. I am well, loving this conversation. Go ahead. It's vital. <laughs> it's vital. You can't if you don't. If I don't practice, I won't have a career. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> Uh, so Glenn Siegel's Take 5 guest, Joe Manurelli, is here, a trumpeter extraordinaire. He's, we're going to hear once again about how he's going to grace us with his presence next week. We're going to take a break and be back with Joe and Glenn right after these messages. Stay with us.
This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Slice open a fresh local watermelon, bright pink inside. Wait, watermelon? This time of year? Watermelon radishes. Sure, it's winter, but the Atlas Farm Store has so much fresh local produce. Basics like potatoes, onions, and butternut, apples, carrots, beets, plus little adventures like daikon and celeriac root. I know, you look at celeriac or daikon and wonder what to do with them. Just buy them and try them. They don't bite. The Atlas Farm Store, fresh local produce, even now. It's a great night out with friends, family, or the office team. The Junior Achievement Bowling Night on Friday, February 17th at Shaker Bowl in East Long Meadow from 6 to 9 p.m. The event includes many contests, giveaways, and fun. Pre-registration is required at jawm.org forward slash bowl. Your support helps JA prepare young people for real-world career and financial success through our in-school and after-school programs. Thank you. Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, your message at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And you'll be supporting the local news, Valley Talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, your message at whmp.com and add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP, your message at whmp.com. Hilltown Families, a community-based education network in Western Mass, believes in creating resilient and sustainable communities by developing and strengthening a sense of place. Together, we are creating a new culture of intentional learning, one that is based in our communities and infused with local and personal values, supporting authentic connections through self-directed learning. Each week online at hilltownfamilies.org, we identify embedded learning opportunities found in local events and resources, interpret the educational and social value of engagement, and share with our readers smart ways to engage in their community and with one another. When we make learning inclusive, accessible, and intergenerational, bringing people together through a shared interest and creating a shared history, we strengthen our sense of place and our sense of self. Join us at hilltownfamilies.org. Subscribe and discover your community while participating in the creation of a new culture of intentional learning. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect, certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor. They seemed to be at ease. I hung around. Now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And, of course, Glenn Siegel here on on Take 5 segment. And uh, I really love this conversation you're having with Joe. Yeah, it's it's beautiful and it's easy. And uh, we're excited to have Joe come to the Valley uh, next week. Joe, you mentioned... Joe Manurelli. I should have said his name for anybody who's just tuning in. Yes, Joe Manurelli, great trumpet player who also plays uh, piano and is a gifted educator as well. We'll talk about that in a little bit too. Joe, you mentioned before the break that uh, you only picked up the... or you started seriously uh, on the trumpet around 20 years old, which is kind of late, as you mentioned. Uh, Tell us about how you came to the trumpet and, uh, and your 
catching up? Well, I, I, can't, I really started playing the trumpet in sixth grade. I was about 12 years old, and I played for three years, and I had, a very good, I had two very good teachers. And, but, but around 14 to about 20, 21, I hardly played uh, just for fun. You know, I never warmed up. I never had a regiment. I never, you know, just never had any chops. And, uh, and, and at that time, I was just playing sports. But the thing is, when I was also in sixth grade, I started playing guitar and piano. And the guitar, um, by 7th and 8th grade, I was playing folk music in the church every Saturday night. I was, like, with the nuns, and, you know, so I had that gig for, like, two or three years. So, you know, I was a musician already at, like, 16, 17. And then at 18, 19, 20, I had a job in a Baptist church on the south side of Syracuse, uh, Central Baptist Church, um, a good friend of mine who became one of my best friends and mentors, Reverend uh, Leroy Ganey. Uh, gave me a job as the pianist, so I was playing the hymns and and also playing for the choir on piano. So by the time I was 20, even though I wasn't playing trumpet, you know, I was playing in church. I had, you know, I was very, you know, I, I had a lot of experience playing music. And actually, you know, like playing piano in a Baptist church for people who maybe not be that musically inclined is one of the greatest experiences ever because you, you cannot falter at all. Like any, like I remember when I first started, I, you know, like once in a while I would falter and the whole congregation would just fall, you know. <laughs> so it was, you know, it was re- really good training for, you know, just making sure that you play everything correctly, you know. Mm-hmm. And then when I was at Fredonia State, I got cut off the basketball team my junior year. And that's when I started, you know, I went to the, I, they, they have a music school there, which I wasn't in. I, I was a, just, I, I have a liberal arts degree. But um, I used to go down to the practice rooms and just started listening to Clifford Brown. And, you know, I mean, I love jazz. I just didn't, you know, I didn't, I wasn't putting in any work. Um, so that's when I started. I was about 20, 21 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and uh, we're in February, today's February 2nd, and it's uh, Black yes. History Month. Uh, tell our listeners a little bit about uh, the African-American roots of jazz and how, uh, how important that is to you in your career. Uh, well, it's everything. I mean, first of all, I think that, I don't really know. I have, you know, I'm not a um, uh, expert on, you know, American history, but I know that probably the slaves were singing the blues in the backyard and improvising, and then that led to, you know, um, uh, ragtime feel, and then that led to a, like a stride, you know, feel, and then the jazz age, you know, in the 20s. So, and it was all. Uh, you know, perpetuated by, you know, African-Americans. And uh, the music is a, is a black music, you know. I mean, it's, you, you know, like everybody I've listened to, everybody I copy from, 98% of it are, are you know, are black people. And uh, most of the people I work with and engage with, yeah, I'm in totally into the black culture. So it's the, jazz is a, is, a, is a black art, you know. Uh, not to say that white people can't play it, <laughs> of course they can, and they can feel it just as well as anybody, but the roots of the music uh, is definitely a- African, and the rhythm of the music is African, and you have, and I really believe to, to be a, you know, a great jazz musician, you have to, you have to know African rhythms, like you have to, you have to know what that is, you have to know what that sounds like, and, and uh, that's, that's all I would say, it's, for me, in my experience, it's very deep, and, you know, mm-hmm. And, and I'm so happy to be that my life went that way. Let me say that too. As are we happy that your life went that way. Yeah. So, and Joe Manuel, I just 
Go ahead. I just say one more thing about that. Sure. See, I grew up as a basketball player, so I was I was already in that culture. <laughs> you know what I mean? I had pictures of Dr. J and and uh, well, I had Pete Maravich too. But you know, I had most of the, you know most of the people I really identified with were black. You know, basketball players. So that too. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, you did not interrupt me. So I, I um, we, we're talking here with trumpeter. Joe Manuelli, who's coming here, and he's going to work with our high school students. He's got a, a full plate um, next Tuesday. But uh, Tuesday evening, you're going to sort of cap off this wonderful day by being at the Drake in Amherst with the Green Street Trio. Have you played with them before? And, yeah. and go ahead. Oh, no, yeah, I have. I played with Paul a few times, and, uh, and we used to play in a bowling alley. I haven't played at the new venue yet. Um, the last venue was in a bowling alley, which was actually cool. It was a room off to the side, and and they have a you know the the the, the patrons are beautiful. Uh, many people came, but I'm I'm looking forward to playing in the, in the new venue. Yeah, I think the, I think those patrons will be with uh, with us on Tuesday night. I know. Look, look for a shiny bald head, and that'll be mine sitting there in front of you. <laughs> I can't wait to meet you. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it too. But yeah. the Green Street Trio is just uh, it seems like artists of your caliber come here and pick up with our local guys and just are always amazed at uh, how well um, they do. Well, they're good players. I mean, they're, they're, they're great players, man. You know, they just happen to live up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all, I mean, there's great players all over the world. It's just that, uh, you know, the scene, the best scene is probably New York City, but there's great players everywhere. I agree. So you're also going to be working, as Buzz mentioned, with young musicians from the Northampton High School on Monday. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about your approach to teaching. What do you hope to get across in such a short amount of time? Well, the same thing I told you about the music, man. Like, if you want to play jazz music, you have to study the roots of it, you know, and, and the roots of it come from the rhythm. So that's the one thing I would probably, you know, try to get that point across. And then as far as just being a musician, you know, it's about dedication to your instrument. So I try to get that across, you know, like, you know, um, you know, like it's important to have a hero. If you're a young person, you know, have have some heroes that you can look up to and you can aspire to. That's very important. And, to, you know, just to, yeah, and probably many other things I'll, will come in my mind that day. But like going into it, those are the kind of things I would try to, you know, get across, you know, the, the dedication and, and, you know, I would ask the question, do you love it? Do you love music? You know, because if you love it, then everything's cool. But if you're on the fence, you better think twice about it, you know, because, you know, when things go bad, you know, you have to be, you have to at least have the feeling inside, like I'm doing what I want to do in life. You know what I mean? Even though right now things are not going my way. So I try to get that across too. Like if you really love it, then go for it. But if you don't really love it, there's a question, then you should think about it. You know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And is most of your teaching uh, trumpet related, or do you teach? Yeah, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and you're teaching at Juilliard. Is are you still there? I teach at Juilliard. I'm an adjunct teacher there. I, actually, everybody's an adjunct teacher there. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a, it's a part time job. You know, just go up there and I teach. Uh, you know, very talented students, man. Very talented students. Mm-hmm. And I teach at Temple University in Philly, and also very talented students. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, it's really great situation for me they're both just part-time jobs and i can still go on the road and come back and you know it's it's okay mm-hmm. it's, it's really a, a blessing for me beautiful so one more time glenn how can people pick up on on uh, seeing joe this coming week yeah well uh 
the public performance, as you mentioned, is Tuesday at 7.30 at the Drake in downtown Amherst. Um, no reservations needed, just show up, and that will be followed by a jam session uh, starting around 8.30. So, um, yeah. Which is always a jam great. session. is always shockingly good. Mm -hmm. We have so many great young musicians around here yeah. being nurtured by people like Joe uh, Manuarelli. Joe, thank you so much for joining us, and break a leg on Tuesday. I can't wait to hear you. Thanks. It's nice talking to you guys. Thanks so much. Nice All talking right. to you. And everybody else, thank you for joining us, and... We'll be with you tomorrow on Talk to Talk. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be right sure to join me noon to three Eastern time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5. 1400 and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhoun, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission Live is to prevent and end child and abuse in our community and in the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station. It's a